Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, all of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode a valuable source of inspiration and insight. My sponsors for season three of One for the Road are the amazing Rock Sober, a brand established in 2017 and led by brothers Sean and Lee, who are both in recovery and on a shared mission to inspire and support recovering addicts worldwide. Injecting rock and roll into sobriety, Rock Sober offers merchandise and accessories to inspire and empower its community of sober badasses. The boys have recently launched a new range of alcohol-free beers which are taking the market by storm. Every beer purchased will help Rock Sober on their mission to support and inspire more people in recovery. Their message is clear. You don't need alcohol to have a good time. So let's all rock sober and remember the good times with Rock Sober AF Drinks. My guest today on One for the Road is an American media personality, an activist, writer and speaker. She is also the co-founder of Reclaim These Streets. It gives me great pleasure to introduce to you the fabulous Jamie Klingler. So good morning, Jamie. Welcome to my podcast, One for the Road. How are you today? I'm good. I'm excited to be here. You've had a busy week. Yeah, it's 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 been January's been interesting. Um, it's actually been a really pretty crazy year. Yeah, I know. Well, we can talk about that later, but I'm quite nosy. So um <laughs> I like to wind it all the way back to childhood normally. So are you comfortable telling me about um where you grew up, how it was for you? Sure. Um I was born and raised in Philadelphia, um, in the city. And my parents divorced when I was a baby baby. So I was like six months old. But I lived week to week with my mom and dad. So I was Sunday to Sunday with my dad and Sunday to Sunday with my mom. And when you're little, it's all you know. So it doesn't really it's not like I have any memories of them together. So that kind of um that kind of change was quite usual. But I think it um definitely affected me in that the households were so different that once I was living by myself and living as as an adult, I kind of hold on hell for leather and I stay in one place as long as I can. Like I'm not a big fan of moving a lot or changing jobs a lot. I kind of really like the stability and not having the ground shift under me. So how old were you when um, your drinking started? Because I was quite young, actually. I was 14. And I always find like people in the UK seem to start earlier. And I don't know whether it's to do with the age limit or what, but how old were you? I was probably 14 when we were drinking on the weekends in high school. Yeah. But it, it was... It was drinking at kegs in the woods. It wasn't, I don't know, it wasn't more organized than that. We were sneaking into the bars down the shore in Wildwood, New Jersey when we were young. But I don't know, it it was always very social. And it was always lots of games, lots of 
lots of beer pong, lots of being like we lived at the beach every summer through college and waitress our way. So the culture of work really hard, party really hard uh, was very, very much my life. And when did you realize that actually it starts to become a problem because for me it took a while but it was a problem pretty much straight away because I used to get drunk a lot at 14 but when you're that age you don't really recognize it as a problem do you no and and I I don't really think the the mirror and the recognizing that it was abnormal or it was different than the rest of my surroundings happened until I was probably like 35 so when I was in my 20s and I was in the media and I was going to lots of events and I was partying with people, everybody was doing it. It was when I decided not to have kids that it became other people were aging out of that phase. And I was still in that phase very much. And I was still, I was becoming the oldest person in my social circles. I was becoming the oldest person in the room that was still hitting it hard and going out all the time. That's really interesting, actually. Because I, I was having this conversation the other day and, and I think people that have a relatively normal relationship with alcohol kind of do grow up, don't they? That They meet someone, they settle down, they have families and then it's not so much an issue. But with me, I don't think I really grew out of my teenage years really and they actually say because of the development of the frontal cortex is underdeveloped if you drink when you're young – Emotionally, I was stuck pretty much there. So my escapism or or however you want to be was just remaining all the time, well into my 50s, really. And when I stopped drinking, it was a double whammy for me because sitting with my feelings was really, really more difficult because it's like, well, I've had a 40-year break (laughs) from that. So I found that really difficult. But so when you reached 35... What was the point that you thought, I've got to rein it in, or or was it just you noticed that things were changing? It was more that I noticed things were changing, and people were commenting, and my family was like, whoa, what's going on here? Like what?" And and it, it kind of coincided with my mom getting diagnosed with cancer. So being an expat and being across an ocean with a dying parent, um, and she was sick for six years. So it was a very, very drawn out, painful illness. And, and for me, my family at that point was very much like, you got to come home. Like you got to, you got to deal with this. You don't have kids. You can come home and trying to establish my own boundaries and be like, my life is in London. I've been in London for 15 years yet not having kids here, not having anything that made me be here. It was like, I was proving to her how cool my life was that I had to stay in London. And yet I was, I was hating being in London and I was hating being in Philly for chemo. So I really ended up in this limbo and just numbed it and drank gallons and gallons of white wine when you say gallons i think i read somewhere that um you were buying 10 liter boxes and i didn't even know that existed <laughs> five liter box two five, five liter boxes liter. but that was that was the last week i ever drank but um yeah. i i was i was always out so i was out six or seven nights a week and it was usually two bottles of wine a day uh, and that's a that's a lot isn't it and it was a lot. and um how was that affecting your health it just all it was all one mess of, I wasn't eating well. You're all, you're hungover when you wake up, you drink to get like, you're back drinking after three o'clock and you're like always in that horrible heartburn, horrible digestion, eating crap food. I was I like a lot of that period is a bit of a blur, but yeah, I just, I was just utterless and I didn't care. Like I just wasn't interested. Like I wasn't interested in addressing it and I wasn't interested in being alive or making it any better. Limbo. I call it like that no man's land. 
because for me, it was like I knew I'd do something about it, but I didn't want to do something about it, you know? And I was stuck like that for years. Um, and it was because, really, I wasn't in a relationship and I wasn't really accountable to anyone. And it was only when I met my now wife that I thought, actually, there's someone else involved here because it affected everything, you know. And before, when I lived on my own for 10 years, I just used to drift along. And I don't know if you can relate to this, but I, I honestly, there's a decade of my life that I don't really remember because it was a constant blur of doing the same thing, you know, like blunting everything out, having excuses, being in denial, not getting involved with anything, but functioning at the same time where I was carrying out my job quite successfully. But it was almost like I was in remote control because I knew my job that well, you know, so I didn't really, there there was no extra challenges, I suppose. Yeah, I was in my job for 10 years. And when I was on special projects, then I was activated, then I was full on. But the rest of the time, like I could float and be seen as an overachiever. And a lot of my job was entertaining people and working with restaurants and working with people. So it was it was part of the culture of five hour lunches and and be involved and be there and be in the room. So it it, it very much it very much was a problem. And I was very unhappy every day, almost ended with me crying like mm-hmm. constantly. And and when it becomes so normalized and everyone's just used to it. I was just the drunk girl that cried in the corner a lot. That becomes your identity, isn't it? And actually, the most interesting thing for me about the year of transformation and quitting drinking and I lost a ton of weight and started exercising, how quickly reputational damage can be fixed. Mm. When you actually show that you're committed to being a good friend again, to being focused, to being involved, to loving people again. There's a lot of sins that have been forgiven. And like, I don't, my friends that love me are so glad to have me back that they, they don't need me to go through every transgression. They don't need me to walk through and constantly apologize. They're very, like my best friend and I've had a million discussions, but she's like, all I wanted for those years was to get my Jamie back. And now that I have you back, I'm never letting you go. Like, and, and, and my commitment to her more than anybody is that this isn't a whim. This is full on. I never want to drink again. Like there's no benefits. There's no like shining glass of wine in the corner for me because kind of hated who I became. And I was really ashamed of it. And I'm really embarrassed. Yeah. Well, do you know what? When you said that, that people forgive you more, I think a lot of that we think about is about ourselves and people, all your best friends see the essence, the real essence in you as a human being, but we don't. Because we go to rock bottom with our mental health, our, um, our self-esteem, self-respect. So we see this person as a failure. We can't do this, can't do that, even though we're functioning. But it's your real true friends that see the true essence in you. And that, that's what's wonderful. Because when you give up, all of a sudden, that they come around you, they support you. And as you say, the accountability then of I don't want to let myself down, but also I want to prove to them that I am a good friend. I don't want to ever leave myself again. Uh, and it's amazing. The energy and the the lack of shame I have right now, like the lack of waking up in the morning and being like, oh my God, what did I say? What did I do? Who did yeah. I piss off? Like there's none of that anymore. Like I wake up and I'm like, I probably told some people off, but I absolutely remember it. And I know what I said and I, I stand by it. Like, I'm not scrolling back through Twitter being like, who did I fight with last night when I was drunk on Twitter? Like, it's very much 
Who did I fight with very sober and with good words? Oh, Jamie, honestly, I, I fell out with a really close friend of mine on Facebook. And do you know what? I could have messaged him individually. I, I was bored. I was looking for attention, drunk. You know, it's like, who who can I interact? I used to text people and didn't get reply and then snap back at them. Oh, well, if you can't be bothered. And it was all my own stuff, you know. But this whole debacle on Facebook virtually ended our friendship for years because he couldn't believe. he The way he worded it was, I cannot believe you pressed send. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I remember being that drunk that my finger was hovering over that and I've gone... Fuck it. Think. Do you know what I mean? And when I woke up in the morning, I had a whole reel of abusive messages saying, I cannot believe your toxic poison. It's like, oh my, it was literally like someone had died, you know, and, and it's things like that, that how can I ever go back to that? Because as you say, the clarity I have now, when I wake up, I have a clear conscience. I know exactly what's happened the day before. And if something has happened, I know how to deal with it as well. And my best friend and my best friend in America was like, you still come out with them and you still speak your mind a lot. But it's but it's with purpose. And it's because I want to. It's not because I've got a hot head because I'm drunk. And and that's the thing is, I think there's a lot of talk. A lot of the books I read, a lot of things I read were about introverts using it for confidence. And I've never been short of confidence and I've never been short of mouthiness. But I I just got into the habit. It was just really, really habitual. And actually, so when I quit, I, um, I went cold Turkey and then it was Easter weekend and I had had shingles, which I thought was COVID. And I got really, really scared. And I was just like, I'm not drinking for the rest of lockdown. And then a couple months later, I sent a picture, um, to my best friend and she sent two pictures side by side. And she's like, this is what everyone is seeing. This is how big this difference is. I just want you to see. And um, I ended up sending that to a friend that worked at a magazine and said, do you want me to write about this? Do you want me to write about when a party girl stops partying? Mm. And um, it went in new magazine and it was my like coming out as a non-drinker party. But in order for the article to go, they made me talk to a doctor and the doctor scared the, I don't know if I could curse, but he scared the crap out of me. And he was like, this is how people die. You quit, then you go back. You quit, you go back. He was like, you've got a one and done chance. You should never, ever have alcohol pass your lips again. Your life will be better. You need to never drink again. And I was like, my my original thing, when anybody tells me what to do, I'm like, I can be, I can be extraordinary. I don't have to listen. And then I was like, actually, at core, I'm an attention seeker. And I'm getting so much better attention from not drinking, not being people's albatross, not having this constant, are you okay? Did you get home okay? Like not having people have to take care of me. Mm. And, and actually it's so exciting to, to be talking about stuff and to be sharing this stuff. I don't know what that switch was. I, if I knew I would, I would just tattoo it on my face, but like whatever that accountability thing was for me, I'm just a non-drinker. I will never drink again. Used up my credits. There's nothing that would improve my life less than drinking again. I, do you know what? I feel exactly the same. And people quite often say to me, how can you say you will never drink again? I don't want to drink again. That, that's For me, it's like moving country. It's, like, it's also I've like got... me saying I'll never do heroin. There's no chance I'm ever going to do heroin. Yeah. Like it's, not, it's not something that is in my scope. No. And, it's, and for me, the drinking thing is, is now the same. Like, I will not drink. No, no, I'm the same. 
Um, and I won't because I don't want that. I want. I don't want to go back to any of that terrible nightmare that I was in. And life's changed so much, and it has for you. I mean, you stopped, right? And then tell us about your incredible transformation um, when you decided to end alcohol out of your life. So I quit um, Easter weekend, April 2020. And then I did like until lockdown was over, I said I wasn't going to drink. Then I did the article. Then I decided I was going to give myself a month once the bars were open because I quit when everything was super, super locked down. So nobody was out. So there was no fear of missing out, which is kind of my biggest thing. And then I, I, that summer, I really was like, you know what? I'm done. I'm just going to stop. And then I started telling people about it. I wrote about it, which was a big thing. And then six months later, friends of mine were doing the Couch to 5K and I was watching them do it. And I've never been able to run. I've just never, ever been a runner. And I was... 230 pounds. I was like 16 stone. And I started the couch to 5k. And the first day was absolutely awful. Like I went to a graveyard near my house. I lost my phone, the dog. I have a very old dog who was like crying and following me because she didn't know what I was doing. It was a mess. And I came home and was all defeated. And the next day I did it again. So I did six weeks of running. And then I, um, I joined Noom and I've never, ever dieted. It was just one of those things. If you're drinking two bottles of wine a day, there's no point in trying to diet. Like you're never going to get rid of that many calories ever. And you don't have enough hours because the hours that I was investing in wine. And so I started doing Noom and between the running and the Noom and the spending those hours walking and being outside with the dog and, and really, really changing my entire diet. I lost a hundred pounds. Um, so in a year I basically lost my vices for the most part. And, um, and during that year, I got, um, I went away for six weeks after I broke up with my long-term boyfriend. So we had been together like eight and a half years. So it was a big, it was a year of change. Um, <laughs> and we're still very close. Like he's one of my best friends and he's family. And I got back and I was, I was isolated. And I was by myself and we were locked down again. And Sarah Everard was killed by Wayne Cousins, a serving police officer in London. And I'd watched the seven days of her missing on the news with, the tiniest, tiniest shiver of hope and uh, sliver of hope, sorry. And cops were telling women the only way they could keep themselves safe was to stay in their houses. And I was already by myself. I already live alone. And it was like, am I supposed to stop getting groceries delivered? Am I supposed to stop walking my dog? At what point do I become like an agoraphobic who can't ever see men? Like that's not quality of life. That's not, that's not allowed. Like that is not okay. I don't get locked in for the rest of my life. Like I'm in a fairy tale because men keep killing us. So I was furious. And, and in my old job, I was an events, I ran an events company. So I said I was going to do a vigil and I tweeted I was going to do a vigil for her. And local women were doing a vigil. We joined forces and all hell broke loose. Um, the police said we couldn't do a vigil because of public health and because of regulations. We sued the police. Uh, we ended up canceling the vigil and raising half a million pounds for women and girls groups. I was one of the spokespeople. So I ended up doing hundreds and hundreds of interviews and it's become a movement. We have done a year's worth of campaigning and activism and my life's really, really changed. And, and the courage to put my hand up and my head above the parapet and to do all the news. Like I, I would never have had the focus, the stamina or the strength had I still been drinking. I would have, I would have had the anger and I would have had the rage but I wouldn't have been able to articulate it in a way that enforces and enacts change. 
And this is what I get from you, Jamie. It's like because someone told me about you and I thought what what you've done since giving up drinking is a real example of how you can turn your entire life around. But not only yours, but everyone else's, you know, as a knock-on effect. So this thing you create, Reclaim the Streets, right? Do you want to tell us how that's doing now and what's come from that? Yeah, so so we, we ended up, our mission statement um, is we use legislation, community action, and education to ensure that no woman has to text me when you get home again. So it's all about what what is going on. And, and it's not about women taking more self-defense classes. It's not about apps to keep us safe. It's about men stopping to kill, stopping killing us. You know, yeah. like the, the solution for male violence against women sits with men. And that's not, that's not a rash concept, but it's, it's apparently people needed to hear it. Um, we're doing consent and um, respect workshops with children through Shout Out UK. And we're talking to the government a lot. And we're trying to work out what are the ways and who are the voices that need to be heard to actually make change? Because a lot of times women's safety is very much a PR exercise and it's not about really getting things done. Last week, I, I was at Cambridge Union and participated in a debate about confidence in policing in this country. And a young woman came up afterwards and she was very upset and very drunk and and she wanted to get all this stuff out and she wanted to tell me all this stuff, but wasn't able to. And on the train ride home, my best friend was like, that used to be you. You had the passion. You knew what was up. You knew you knew you had stuff you needed to get out, but you you just couldn't because it was so buried under layers of inebriation. And and that's the big thing is it's like you have all of this and it gets lost along the way and then it gets buried. And then when you're drinking, it there's there's moments of it, but there's not your purest self and there's not yourself that can get it all together, package it up and get it out of your mouth. I totally agree with that. And do you know what? There's got to be a conversation amongst men as well, because I remember when that happened, I did a post, right? And I drafted this post and it was, again, one of those moments of, is this going to open a massive can of worms here? Was I in a mentally stable place to do it although i was um sober i thought no i i have responsibility on my account not just to talk about sobriety but about things that matter to me and are important to me and do you know what the only backlash i got were from men moaning that they're not the same as all men and I, that wasn't my point and they're the men that need to hear it they're the men that do it you know we all have and, and a lot of male allies a lot of male friends are like what can we do you know who you're friends with that are creeps. You know who you're friends with that cross the line. And 97% of women say they're, they've been harassed and, sex, and sexually harassed in public. If it's 97% of women, it's a hell of a lot of men. It's not, it's not, not all men. And, and, and boundaries change and what's acceptable has changed. And we all have to grapple with that. And we all have to work with that. But like, it is all of our jobs to communicate those changes and to work to a better place. And it's, it's not just for your moms, your girlfriends, and your sisters. It's for every woman you encounter. And it, what has been shocking is that, like I was talking to a friend the other night, and we were talking about the rates of getting mugged and stuff in London, which are very high. But if you get mugged in London, you are worried about your new phone. You're worried about your wallet. If I get mugged, I'm worried I'm going to get sexually assaulted or raped. Like at, that, at the point I'm getting mugged, I don't care about my possessions. I'm just trying to keep my body 
from being violated. And that's a really big difference. That's a really big difference that when you're thinking about it, but in terms of sobriety, the number of situations I put myself in that were so much more risky than any situations I'm in now. Cause you're always on that knife edge when you're out, when you, when you're, when you don't care and when you're not trying to keep yourself safe, when you're not, when you're not worried about being alive, you know, like when, when all, when you just don't want to be alone and you just don't want the night to end, you're making decisions that are much, much riskier mm. than when I'm really happy to come home and snuggle with my dog and, and a book and a hot chocolate. Like, and I think for me, part of what was so earth shaking and ground shattering for me, for Sarah, was she was doing all the things right. She was wearing a bright, a bright uh, jumper. She called her boyfriend and was on, had sneakers on, was just walking home, you know, and there were a million times where I should not have gotten it. And I know that. And, and it's interesting because now I don't have the warm blanket of rosé around me, but I still live in Camden and I find nighttime out quite intimidating mm. because there's brain groups of men and they're, they're really not even acknowledging me 95% of the time, but because I was always part of those groups of brain drink, drinking people. And now that I'm not, and I'm talking about violence against women all day, every day. So I'm heightened awareness. I'm not drinking it. My bravado has really suffered. And my, my sense of safety has really, really suffered this year. I was just thinking as you were saying that. So where I live, we've got a beautiful common people, their dogs and that. But I'm really mindful myself. If I walk behind a woman, I will cross the road. So she, she's not worried that I'm going to creep up on her. I avoid eye contact sometimes because, I, you know, at specific times of night, I don't want her to think I'm that kind of bloke and that. And it, and it makes me feel uncomfortable as well because really I shouldn't have to do that. But I do it because the way I was brought up and... And it's polite to do. Like, that, and that's the thing is it should be normal and polite to give women space because we don't get it. Like I, the amount of times that people grab me when I'm running or try to talk to me or, or try to grab my earphones when I'm running, like what, like I do not want to be touched. Do not touch me when I'm exercising. Do not touch me ever. Like you do not have permission to my body. And, and that's, and it, like I was, I was using this example for guy friends of mine. There's a huge, huge difference in being in a pub and approaching a woman in common space and being in the hallways going to the loo and she doesn't have an exit an, an exit point. Yeah. Like if you're blocking how I'm trying to go, that's a power move. That is not the same as if I have free space to say, thank you for saying I'm pretty and I can walk away. If you're blocking my exit, that's instant aggression. That's instantly making me have to know that I have to get through you to get out or I have to retreat. But it's up to men to think about that. And I know a lot of times it's innocent, but it's up to men to take responsibility for thinking about that because we're always thinking about it. The pervasive low level of fear of what if this gets out of hand? What is my exit plan? We've been doing that since we were 12 years old. Mm. And, and you guys don't have to. And like I've seen, I had a couple of dinners this weekend and with women who work in the movement and leaving and being like, mm, text me when you get home. And like hating that we still say it to each other, resenting that we say it to each other. But it's it's something I've done every night of my adult life when I remembered to. When I was drinking, 
people waited up for those texts and they never came. And sometimes you forget to do it because you're too sozzled and you get in, you might oh have God. another glass of wine or you might pass asleep and that. And, and then it's happened to me where I've said to someone, look, just let me know you're home safe and they've got in a cab or something. And it's really, really scary. And uh, do you know what as well? Um, when I was drinking and I was out clubbing and that, the amount of times that women come up to me to hook on because they didn't want to, go home, they friends have all gone, they were drunk and that. And I've made sure that I've actually walked girls home on my own. But also, like, I lived I lived opposite the Holly Arms for a number of years, which was a bad, that was one of the bad decisions that I should not have made, was moving into that flat. And the after party was always at mine. And so the men that I didn't know that came back to hang, you know, and, it, and again, I, I was very, very lucky and I got away with murder. Well, not real murder, but I got away with it. And I got away with being safe, not through my own, not through my own safe choices. And, and that's the thing is I do absolutely take responsibility for myself, but um, it's hard because the, the fact of the matter is every single one of us would have gotten in that car with Wayne Cousins and there's nothing she could do. And I, I hate him for it. I hate the power. I hate the handcuffs. I hate every, every detail of that story still makes my stomach explode it's, uh, it, and me too it's disgusting it really is and it really makes me want to do something as well as a man as someone with an account that I've got what for any men listening to this as well what what can we do that would make things better call Anything? out the behavior you know you you guys have more access to more information about men's inner selves if men that you know, if you're watching men that prey on vulnerable women or prey on broken birds, or you, you know, you know, the men in your groups that have, that act questionably, you know, the men in the groups that isolate women in the bar, wait till they're, wait till they're tipsy. And the, the, the men that, oh, I'm getting this one, you know, you know, the men that do it. You do know. I know the men that I knew that did it. I knew the men that I knew that were creeps. And the men that I would never be alone with, the, the men that I would tell women never to be alone with. But it was whisper, whisper, like, oh, God, he's an ass. Don't, don't go near him. Call it out. Call it out for what it is and, and let women know. If, if that guy is around, you, you, need, you guys have responsibility to take him out. And to call it out publicly, like, call it out among the group. Yeah. If the behavior is not allowed, like we were, t- we were talking about highway code here because we're working on this. If there's something in the highway code that says you can't yell out women out of a car, and the difference is if you're tested on it and kids know that it's not allowed. But if you're if you're a teenager in a car and another teenager yells at a girl to whatever, suck this, suck that. And the guy sitting in the passenger seat is like, what the hell is wrong with you? If it becomes socially unacceptable to do it, it won't happen. If it's funny and everybody's high fiving that you've made this girl cry, then it keeps happening. Mm. So it's, it's about men socially making being a lech and being a creep, unacceptable. Mm. And if that's unacceptable and the behavior is not ha, 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 then the the accompanying behaviors also go down. I hear that. And, you know, like I'm working with Alcohol Change UK to um, stop sober shaming. And, and most people I know that used to drink as sober shamed, men and women. But when men stop drinking and they go to the bar and tell their mates, oh, I'm not drinking anymore. You get called a pussy. You get called, what's wrong with you? 
you mental and all this business, right? So to stand up to that takes courage alone. But to then stand up to someone saying to a woman something derogatory is challenging. But But the bullies are the bullies. And the bullies that are calling you a pussy for not drinking are likely the bullies that are doing it to women as well. Yeah. Like the a violence begets violence. And those circles, the men that beat up their wives are often the bullies. And it's about their self-esteem and it's about them having experienced violence as children. But it's the same psychology of stomping on who's weaker than you. And do you think like when you say having private conversations, so I'm thinking it from my angle as well, maybe having a private conversation with that those people, not call them out, I agree with, right, to almost humiliate them in front of everyone, but also maybe having a private conversation saying, look, mate, what, what you said the other night was really unacceptable. And have you thought about the consequences of that? And, you know, have you really thought about that? Or were you just being a jack the lad and an asshole, basically? And I think that could be quite powerful as well. Yeah. And 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 it's it's also measuring the situation and measuring measuring what an effective form of communication is. I know what I'm like, and I know that if someone publicly calls me on on behavior. My first instant is, okay, let's go. Let's, let's have this out. But Fine, actually, yeah. I'm much better if I sleep on something and then I'm like, wow, that had val- validity to it. You know, like I have to look at that. I have to think about that. I, I have to address that. And obviously, I remember those conversations now. And I think my, my work on my listening, my work on my friendship, um, I think everything has really improved this year because, because I'm not repeating myself and because I'm not just on those rapid repeat cycles of drinking. They're full answers. And and the other thing is as well, when you don't drink, you get so much more time. So yeah. it allows you to think about these responses, doesn't it? It's like And and like I it was on, on Sunday. I had a rough, rough week last week. And um we were in we we took the Metropolitan Police to High Court for our human rights violations. So I was in court all week and then I was at Cambridge Union doing the debate, which was very exciting, but very challenging. And at the end of the week, it was probably the biggest week of my adult life. And I couldn't call my mom. And it was really, really sad. And it was Sunday was just a really hard day of crying and, and living with it, you know, and it, I was so, so sad that she never saw me quit drinking. And she didn't get to see this version of me. And she didn't get to see how much I've accomplished and how strong I've gotten. And I called her best friend and I talked to her for a long time. And she was like, oh my God, she's watching you every minute. But she's also like, you couldn't have done this if you weren't standing on her shoulders. And I'm so glad that the, the, the instinct wasn't let's tamper all these feelings down. Let's say that I don't deserve to have these feelings and that I, I want to just numb it. I felt it and it was okay to feel. And it, it, it felt bad. It felt really sad, but like, she would be really, really proud. And grief sucks. Grief is is a well and it hits you really, really hard. But it's also, if I hadn't cared about her, it wouldn't hurt this much, you know, like, and it's, and I called a couple of friends who have lost their moms and sharing the vulnerability, sorry, I'm crying, sharing the vulnerability, sharing, sharing what this feels like without drowning it is really powerful. It is. I, I mean, I lost my mum three months before I stopped drinking. And towards the end, 
I was quite bad. She she used to come up for the weekend and stay. And and I remember she would park across the road. I had this beautiful cottage, and she would literally it was like she was staying a month. And she would bring over like boxes of cakes and her her drinks allowance because they used to use measures and stuff like that. And towards the end, whenever she came up, I used to get so drunk that I would pass out. And she was always like, David, go to bed, darling, and whatever. And like, the, the you know, my mum died really quickly. She'd become ill in the summer and then really went down. She went down to about six stone. Um, and, you know, on the day that she died, the paramedics come around. She was in a nappy and, you know, and I was holding her hand and her husband, John, the other side. And I watched her pass, which alone was a, a blessed experience. And I told her I loved her. and But it left me with this void in my life, you know, that I've lost my mum. And I gave up three months later. Which is amazing because I the, the two years after my mom died, I, I barely remember. But an amazing thing happened to me, Jamie. And, and I, I had this experience um, where I met my mum in a dream but it wasn't a dream it was semi-reality and do you know what it was so real that since then I feel my mum's with me and I feel like she's helped me and continues to help me because I've just literally like that I stopped a bit like you really yeah I know. and that gives me faith that actually although in in physical life she hasn't witnessed this but wherever she is she's with me so that gives me comfort yeah and, and I think it's one of those things that like I went to bereavement counseling and I, I was, I was really suffering and didn't talk about my drinking at all. Like it was an, it was a no go zone. It was a no go zone. And it just, I didn't get the most out of counseling that I could have because I wasn't admitting how much I was self-medicating. But in a way, when you stop drinking, you have to go through a grieving period there as well, because it's a relationship that you've ended. There's this codependency with it that unless you've been in that area, in your life, unless you relate to it, you don't understand it. And like us talking together over a coffee, you could tell me anything and I would just get it and vice versa, you know. So when you do it on your own, all of a sudden you're in touch with all these raw emotions, but then you've got the cravings and the triggers and then you've got the social situations and then the work and the responsibility and the lack of reward. It all lumps together and it's, it's bloody hard and that's why we need connection. We need to connect with people because otherwise you're on a desert island again. Aren't you? You're alone when you're drinking. You're alone when you're not. So it's really important. And what I see with you, you, you threw yourself into good, healthy eating choices, exercise, positive mindset. And you're amazing, honestly. Honestly, yeah. you are. I'm not just saying that. You, you're just amazing. And what you've achieved, And that's part of the point of sharing it is like, I think when we talk about quitting drinking, it's like, oh, I'm going to miss out on this. I'm going to miss out on this. I'm going to miss out on this. Rather than turn that on its head, like the the shit that has been unlocked for me by not drinking, like the potential, the happiness, the, the faith in myself again. And just like, I'm not wasting my life anymore. I'm not wasting time. I'm not. And obviously I waste some days. Like. Yesterday was pretty much a write-off. Um, the exhaustion and the, the the being in these political circles is quite tiring. Mm-hmm. Um, but but also giving myself the room for that. Like, I, I feel like I shame myself so much less if I'm exhausted, if I've done all this stuff. Like, when I got off the stage at um, Cambridge Union, 
my best friend was there and I was just like, oh my God, I just nailed that. Yeah. And like had, and we were talking about it, but like, had I been in court all day, we would have drank on the train. I would have stumbled through the speech. I still would have thought I could do it. I would not have been who I was. And then there's no way I would have wanted to come back to London. But like, I can get so much done in the day because I have no worry that I'm going to trip on a bottle of wine and be like crying in a speech or crying in a meeting or not being able to do this podcast at 10 o'clock because I'm too hungover. I like I've unleashed the beast. Got it. God help everybody that has to deal with me every day. But I, I very much am like, I'm like a steamroller. Like I have no qualms. Like I will get everything done. And I'm not holding myself back. Like I'm not the barrier in my own way. Because most of what I was doing was just self-sabotage. Mm. It was like literal making myself and my life so much harder. And I, and I can see the passion that you've got. And that's how I feel in my life because I was blinkered throughout my whole life. And I limited all my beliefs because of alcohol. I, I didn't think I could do anything else. I was stuck in my job that I just did day to day to day. I didn't look outside the box and when I stopped drinking, all of a sudden I broke the lid open and I put my head out and was like, whoa, what is this view? Well, this is all right, actually. And that really kept me going. And then I shared my own thoughts on it. And then it's expanded. And the, the dopamine hit you get now is from life. You don't need alcohol in your life now. So the other thing, though, is the people in my industry were friends that were right ahead of me. Like um, this guy, Jamie East wrote an article about quitting drinking and like he was a year ahead of me. And it was like, oh my God, we have a lot of the same friends. We're, we're in the same industry. We're in the same circles. If he can do it, I can do it. And like, it's, it's people like that. And it's kind of why I'm like, when people want me to come on things like your podcast and inviting me, it's like, yes, shout it from the rooftops that mm. you, you don't, I think there's a lot of stuff about, AA and and if it works for people, amazing. But like what I had read about you have to get rid of all your friends because they they're friends that comes with bad habits, or you have to really change your lifestyle for it to work. And the fear of that, the fear of not only quitting drinking, but losing every my family here and losing everything that makes me me here was terrifying. Mm. And although I have totally changed my life, my best friends are all really the same, except for like a couple that were just drinking buddies. And that was one of the things for me is like, I read the, un, um, the unexpected joy of being sober, which I really enjoyed. And then I read quit like a woman, which I really didn't enjoy, but it, like doing that and picking the parts that work for your brain. Mm. Like, I don't care how you decide to get sober. I don't care how you decide to get lose weight or how you decide to eat whatever unleashes your beast, whatever makes you feel like this is working for my brain. This is going to happen. I think the main, main thing for everybody, though, is we self-sabotage to such an extent and we get in our own way and then we use that as an excuse to stop. And it's like, just get out of your own way. Just be nice to yourself. You deserve to not be in those cycles that make you feel bad at night. Like the 2 a.m. waking up and being really ashamed of yourself and not liking what you see in the mirror. It doesn't have to be that way. Like you can literally burn it to the ground and start again. And people are really, really nice about it if you mean it. Like as long as it's not this perpetual like, oh my God, I'm a brand new person. I'm so good. And then like, then you kick everybody when you're on your way down and then you do it like 75, 75 times over again. 
Like I've made a commitment. I will not be the person in the gutter anymore. Yeah. And that's what I did. But I had to mean it. I had to oh, yeah, absolutely. cut the umbilical cord of that relationship and shut the door. You know, um, otherwise I wouldn't have been able to do it. But what you say about finding your own way, I agree. It's like we all be given this huge empty toolbox and we go to a DIY store and we have to fill it with the tools that work for us. So for me, cognitive behavioral therapy, that is my, like, if if a therapist gives me the tools to do that, yeah. I I can work on those tools and I, I can employ them in my life. So CBT for me is like, a godsend. Yeah. Um, and it's what worked for me with Noom and with the eating. And it's what worked for me with anxiety. And and it's it, like, I, I know that your podcast is listened to by tons and tons of people. The, the women's safety work I've done and being on TV and being on radio a lot for that has has exposed me to a lot of people that that aren't nice. <laughs> um, and And dealing with the anxiety of that and dealing with the pressure of that. And also, the number of women that share their stories of abuse has has been harrowing, and I I want to be a space that that's safe for. But I also am somebody who really takes that on, and 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 is, and struggles to not let that like the me and my work are so intertwined that like fundraising for the lawsuit and and suing the cops is is incredibly incredibly draining. Yeah, and and quite often people say to me because um, like in dry January, right? I've done lives every single night. I've got clients. I'm recording a podcast. I'm writing a book. I've created an app. All of that stuff. And people say, "Don't burn yourself out." What do you do to unwind or whatever? And it's like actually, I've got to be really careful because I I'm so hooked into this work that I do that it's almost become a new addiction for me. You know, so I have to be really mindful that I take time out that works for me. And that might be like going to bed really early and watching a film to just disconnect from my brain because I can't self-medicate with alcohol. So I need to, to disconnect with something else. And I think, I think the UK is, is quite far behind the States on the shame of therapy. Cause I got no qualms. Like I, I really, I really need somebody that I don't have to also care about their stuff that I can really dump on and I can say, this is the shit that's going on in my brain. And it really helps me. So um, I really, really enjoy therapy. And I think it's really, really healthy and really good for my brain and, and a place to wrestle things and to think about things and to talk about things. But again, any, any outlets that really center you and, and, and give you space where you're not like shame is such a big thing. Yeah. And when you can get rid of a lot of shame, it's really powerful. Yeah, I mean, I have um, someone I have supervision with, so that's really important for me. And also, I'm going through couples counselling with my wife, Em, because that's important, and, and we get to share a different view with a mediator. So I think therapy is amazing, and I always say that I can work alongside a therapist as well with what I do. And again, it's another thing that I think men are behind with. Oh, my God. Because... Like I had a conversation last night about grey area drinkers, right? And and most of them, in my opinion, or experience of women, and I believe there's a couple of things there because women address their problems a lot quicker where men might say, do you know what, it's just a few beers, what you're talking about, almost caveman style. And I'm not talking about all men, but also we're so behind the things like you talked earlier about women being in a bar, right? Now, if a bloke goes into a bar and he's there all day, 
drinking the bar dry, making lots of fake friends and whatever. He's then how the character, he'd bowl out there, oh, mate, come back, you're a legend. What? If a woman's in there on her own, having a few G&Ts, what is she held as? She's labelled. And, and, and it's so behind. It's so Neanderthal, you know. And it, it's like, I really want to keep banging the drum that, Men, you've got to be more open. You've got to talk. You've got to put, call people out. And and I'm really passionate about that side of my work as well because it's so important. You know, I mean, I've got a 12-year-old stepdaughter. I've got a lovely wife that goes running early in the morning and that. You know, I worry all the time about things. This is the thing, Dave. If if women are safe, men's lives are better too because you're not – like, if if – like, how is a first date, especially with all like the apps and stuff, how is that supposed to be an equal great way of meeting someone when we've got an exit plan in case they get violent? Mm. Like, when we're when we've got someone texting us to make sure he's not a creep like that's that's a horrible way to meet somebody, because if you're going into situations, not, oh, my God, this is going to be really fun. This is going to be great. We can try this is a much different thing than like, oh, my God, what if you where what if there's a switch and he gets handsy or violent and like that? The human trust that that bond is really quite shattered right now. And, and men's mental health is like in a crisis. And we all want to be safer. We all want to have honest communication and, and to advance the human condition. And, and you know, that's true. And what you say about men, but what's your opinion now of how men's trust in police are now after all what's happened? Trust in police. And, and this is one of the things I was saying this week, last week is like, it's so bad and it's so broken. And then when they're recruiting, they're getting people drawn to power, not public service. So it's a perpetual cycle because who who is like really, really a good person and is like, oh, my God, let me go and sign up for the Metropolitan Police right now because they've got a shining reputation. No, they've got a hideous reputation. So you're not getting the people that can best reform it and best elevate it. And it makes the streets less safe for the good cops. Mm. So it's this whole situation is just dire and means so much work like i yeah it's it's a mess but like the best thing the police could do is recruit me not that i not that i want to join the police but um but they're they're so not open to admitting there's a problem and fixing it and it's the same thing with humans if you're not actually having a clearinghouse and saying i fucked up and i want to make this better if there's not that authenticity of really examining what you did and why you did it and how you want to move forward and what you want that to look like, then real change doesn't happen. You have to really, really want to change to actually get yourself over that hump. Because otherwise you just, you quit. I'm never going to drink again until three o'clock that afternoon. And then you're back on the cycle. And I'm someone who believes that people can absolutely moderate. People can have their own relationship with any number of substances and booze, but you have to really be honest about what that relationship is. And you have to look at what it does to your personality. And you have to ask people how they feel around you if you're in an altered state. And if that's who you want to be, go for it. But but for me, it's it's not who I want to be anymore. Oh my God, Jamie, I've got goosebumps listening to that. Because even when you said the altered state, it's what, what you are after a drink. You're not the real, true, authentic you, are you? And you don't have, you don't actually have any insight, real insight into who that person is because you don't see yourself drunk. You see who you feel. Yeah. You see the bravado, like you see that, in, but you, you don't know what you're like. It's true. It's true. And, and when I look at videos of me when I was drinking, 
I was dead behind the eyes, absolutely dead. Uh, and it makes me feel actually really, really sad, but not just for me, for people around me that love me, that what did they see? What did they experience? And it, it, you know, I often say partners don't get enough say in how it was for them during that experience, you know, of losing their partner halfway through the evening where their eyes go at 10 to 2 and and they start slurring and, you know, nodding off and being aggressive and, you know, and I was never physically aggressive, but it was like Russian roulette with me because depending on what I've eaten, what my day was like, what I was drinking, I never really knew myself how I'd react and I would just go like that, you know, one way or the other and it was scary sometimes. And then my wife used to say to me, well, not say to me, she used to think, just go to sleep, Dave, just have more wine. She'd almost ply me with wine so it'd knock me out so she could feel relaxed. And it, it makes me really cringe. Well, you, done, you did what you needed to do about it, though. So, I did. I did. And you're, and you're helping other people ago. do what they need to do. Yeah, yeah. And we talk about it now. And that's where we bang the drum. She's been on my podcast and we've done a film for our Cold Change UK about partners in that because that's another area that I want to continue to grow because I was a partner of her she had she's had cancer three times and I I felt like the outsider then so I I realized there's a real void there of talking about the other perspective you know so I'm banging the drum there as well and lots of other things like yourself and without me giving up drinking I wouldn't have done any of it so I can really relate to your journey and I'm so excited about what you've got ahead. Is there anything you want to say before we go? No, we're 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 basically um we're waiting for the decision by the high court about our human rights being violated. So uh, we should know in the next two weeks. So it's a it's been a interesting old time, but um yeah, take care of the women in your lives and and be advocates and be allies. We all are in this together, and we can all improve it. Amen to that, Jamie. And I'm so grateful you've taken the time out to join me today. And and it's been such a wonderful conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. See you soon, Jamie. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of One for the Road. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can now download my app, Sober Dave, on the Apple and Google Play Store. And on there, you will find lots of tutorials tips and support to help you stop drinking and there are also meditation audios food plans and chat forums you can also find me on instagram at sober dave please remember to join me for next week's episode but until then thanks for listening and have a great week